The Super Bowl is just days away as the Chiefs look to defend their title against the 49ers. Meanwhile, Seattle's first new head coach in 14 years is preparing to build out the rest of his staff. Esteemed beat reporter Bob Condota joins us to preview the big game and lend his insight into the new era of Seahawks football. Let's light him up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my vascular producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? Doing great, man. Doing great, man. It's Super Bowl week. We're drinking the Haterade. We're ready for an awesome, unbelievable matchup, and the Seahawks are filling out their first completely top-down new coaching staff in 14 years. So a lot going on. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing great, man. It's exciting times as a football fan. It's exciting times as a Seahawks fan. And I cannot wait to talk more about it with Bob. But first, if you're listening or watching us right now, it's hopefully because you like the show. And if you like the show, there are a few ways you can support it. If you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Take a couple of seconds to leave us a five-star rating, and if you're feeling super supportive, a quick review as well. You can do that right now. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, where you'll find full video episodes, entertaining clips, and the audio reads of every Cigar Thoughts article. This is probably the best way to help the show grow, and growth is going to enable us to bring more of our football discourse your way. So we're grateful for the few seconds it takes to like and subscribe. And, as always... You can get your official Cigar Thoughts cigars at CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Now, you know, last week, Mike, you and I got to react on the show shortly after the news of Mike McDonald's hiring broke, and it ended up being one of our most watched episodes. The feedback was great, and I really enjoyed getting your thoughts on the matter, but we were missing a key ingredient, and that was the perspective of someone from inside the building. Today, we rectify that situation as we welcome the godfather of the Seahawks beat. He is one of the most prolific reporters in the sport, with his name appearing in hundreds of bylines per year for the Seattle Times. He is Bob Condota. Bob, thanks for coming in. Sure, yeah. How you guys doing? We're great, man. Better now that you're here. How's, uh, how's the last week been for you? Yeah, I mean, the whole last month really w- was kind of crazy with, uh, um, you know, really starting the last that last Sunday. I mean, I can't say any of us knew for sure that was going to be Pete on the way out, but there was de- you definitely knew that it was a, a better than zero chance down in Arizona that when they didn't make the playoffs that something might happen. And uh, you know, so from that point until I guess Thursday when they introduced Mike Mike McDonald, you know, it's just kind of been um, your life's on hold a little bit the whole time because you're waiting first to see what see what they're going to do with Pete, and then when they do that, then you're waiting to see who they're going to hire and. Obviously, the NFL rules um, made it, um, you know, I'd, I'd never covered an NFL head coaching change before right? Right. <laughs> because Pete, it's right. so long. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you cover Jacksonville or something, this is like something you do every year. But, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but Jaguars but just catching strays to, I, to start I, the show. I love yeah, it. <laughs> uh, trying to think, yeah, I, Carolina, I guess. Carolina has been doing mm-hmm. these left and right. Um, but, uh I, I, but I covered University of Washington for a long time. But during that time, they did. But those a lot of times, college searches like theirs this year it took what about about twelve minutes from when DeBoer left to when they hired uh, 
uh, you know, you can do that in college and you're sort of, you sort of need to because of recruiting, but in the NFL, it's a little different. You don't necessarily have to rush your coach hire and the NFL doesn't want you to. So yeah, it was kind of a, kind of a, a long month there. Yeah. Um, just kind of looking at your phone constantly to see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I actually do want to rewind a month to, to New Year's Eve when the Seahawks, I don't know how else to put it, certainly on defense, just got embarrassed by the Steelers with a playoff berth essentially on the line. And I think for Mike and I, that's when our antenna started to go up that, you know, maybe it's not going to be Pete's call about his future because I've long operated under the assumption that, you know, Carol's going to coach in Seattle for as long as he wants to. And, and that clearly wasn't the case. You mentioned that, you know, after that Arizona game, you started to kind of wonder what gave you that sense? Is it just, hey, they missed the playoffs, so he's vulnerable? Or was there something else that you were picking up on? Well, no, I agree with you about the Pittsburgh game. I mean, the Pittsburgh game, I thought, changed. I mean, I don't know if anybody would ever say that quite that bluntly, but I thought the Pittsburgh game changed a lot because up until that point – you know, you could you could excuse a lot of you know they're not better than the 49ers and, and Baltimore and stuff like that. Some of those other losses you could sort of excuse a little bit. Um, but you know when they won those back to back games against Philly and, and Tennessee, and I thought, man, if they get to ten wins and they make the playoffs, you know that's that you can't really argue that. So the, yeah, the Pittsburgh loss. So I I'm, I am kind of meaning more that I guess, but just but just definitely at Arizona, you know, there was this sort of that you know he'll. If you're going to make a change, um, you know, this might be a, a time that it makes sense to do it. And is everybody getting a little bit restless here that they seem to have, they seem to have plateaued this year as opposed to last year? They didn't take that step forward. So it was more just that. Um, yeah. Um, they basically you know, lost that Arizona game. Also. So, <laughs> yeah. By all intents and purposes. Yeah. Like, no, for sure. They yeah. They, yeah. They didn't play better. Yeah. I, no, that's that's a really fair point. And in a game, they they. You know, I mean, I think they felt. I, I think everybody was feeling fairly ominous about that. Like the bear, you know, the Packers aren't losing, but, but still, uh, you know, the Seahawks, as they all said, we got to go take care of our business, and they didn't look like they were doing that right. for most of that game. You're right, and and Arizona, Arizona, kind of just, you know, Arizona that. I mean, that's what Arizona's been doing yeah. a lot the last few years. But and then uh, and then uh, you know, Matt Prater of all people. I mean, one of the better kickers in NFL history and, and that fan duel accounts um, leaking soon. So, <laughs> yeah, um, totally. so for sure, I, it was, it was a weird vibe all the way around. I, you know, and the cigar smoking thing afterward was just kind of strange too. I, it just, um, it just felt, it just felt, uh, it just felt kind of weird there. And as everybody pointed out, you know, we all played the clip of Pete and I, what, I think he said for now, right. Uh, when he was asked how he felt about coming back, yeah. um, you know, Pete, Pete was always weird about his contractual situation, even going back. It's easy to forget the Super Bowl year. Uh, you know, he was going into his, the next year was going to be his last year. And so even during the, when they were winning the Super Bowl, uh, it was sort of a tiny bit of an issue because he only had one year on his contract. And um, even then he was always squirrely about talking about it. So sure. part of me didn't know, well, maybe that's just Pete being Pete, or was that really a, I don't know what's going on. But, you know, when they didn't schedule their end of the year press conference by Wednesday, I think we all sort of knew yeah. Something was happening, and exactly what that something was, um, we didn't know for sure. But yeah. uh, uh, I kicked myself a tiny bit. I should have written a story for that Wednesday, maybe saying that. But it's still hard to know. I, you know, I, maybe they didn't schedule the press conference because Pete had to have uh, go to the dentist or something. Sure, you know, and day. so 
you never knew for sure. But but I I will say uh, my own antenna. Yeah, that Tuesday night when they didn't when we didn't get a yeah we're gonna talk to Pete tomorrow kind of thing because you know how. You know how it always was with Pete. They'd have the the meetings, and right. then he would head, head to Hawaii, and you know, and he would always talk about it during the press conference, like you guys got like ten more minutes <laughs> in six weeks yeah. or whenever the combine rolls around, yeah. and you know, it it just felt different this year. Totally, totally. Well, you know, I I want to transition to the lead story here. You know, Mike McDonald's taking over for Pete Carroll's head coach of the Seahawks. This was to the delight of most Seahawks fans. But what was your initial reaction when you heard the news? And how surprised were you that it ended up being Mike McDee? Well, it's another thing that I, I, I wasn't Nostradamus at all. By the time it happened, I wasn't surprised just because of the, the, the route that it all took and that they were waiting. And, you know, if it was going to be Dan Quinn, it could have been Dan Quinn, you know, uh, two weeks earlier or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, you know, once it kind of wasn't that and you knew they were really casting a broad net, um, you know, you got the feeling much more that, you know, maybe that was part of the thing here was to, um, really take a shot on kind of a, you know, a younger, not unknown, but certainly unproven from a head coaching standpoint, you know, you never know for sure what you're going to get in a coach that's, that, uh, um, hasn't coached. And so we still don't know, but I think that, I, I think maybe they felt like that was the time to do something like that. You know, maybe you really do get the next you know, that obviously he's a defensive guy. So the comparison isn't exactly, exactly the same, but you know, the next Sean McVay or Kyle Shanahan or whatever, that, that guy yeah, who exactly. is sort of the, the prodigy, the, the young prodigy who can, uh, who can completely remake one side of the ball. And, um, you know, so, uh, the longer it took, the, the, the less surprised I was by it, by that standpoint. But yeah, I, I can't say on the day it happened that I thought it was going to be him. Although we did include him, I think in our, uh, you know, five guys, it could be kind of thing you or did. whatever. I mean, his name was kind of out there the whole time, obviously. Sure. Sure. And this is not a hold your feet to the fire question here, but you know, did you get the sense that it was McDonald the whole time is like, this is our number one with the bullet or is it like either him or Ben Johnson? Cause he was kind of the other one that teams were waiting on and they kept winning. And so everybody else was kind of filling out their spot. And this is something we talked about last week. I think one of the benefits uh, to Seattle when it came to this coaching search is most teams that are looking for a new head coach don't have a general manager that's been in place for 14 years. And as a result, these other teams are having to figure out, okay, how are we going to approach free agency? How are we going to approach the draft? We got to get the staff in place so that we can put together a game plan. Whereas nothing about this process is going to be new for Seattle, even with the new head coach outside of, you know, maybe different priorities in terms of what types of players that are bringing brought in. So they, they had the luxury of being able to wait much like the Colts did. You know, I was always really impressed by how the Colts approached it last year. They were willing to wait for Shane Steichen. Did you get the sense that it was Mike McDonald the whole way, or was there a sense that, you know what, maybe it's Ben Johnson or someone else that we're waiting for too? Yeah. Well, and to your point, you're exactly right. And that's where the comparison between like the NFL and college and you, you had John and the personnel team, they're, they're there the whole time. So they're doing all that. They're doing all their, uh, you know, they had guys down at the senior bowl while, while all this was going on, you know, who are doing the regular work that needs to be done this time of year, which is the kind of work that uh, Pete Carroll wasn't, you know, the, the head coaches don't necessarily always do that or whatever. So, um, but you know, they had other people that were there to do that. So you're right. They had that luxury of time. Um, you know, it's interesting. There were there were the eight jobs, but then, you know, two went immediately. You know, I mean, the Raiders and Patriots just hired in-house. And, you know, I, I think John read that part of it quickly 
that, um, you know, who is like just kind of like your draft board of who are these other teams going to hire? And once you realize, you know, we can tell all these that some of these other teams are going to hire this other guy that we're not going to hire anyway. And so that's when it does come. It's the two or three of us that are left hiring the, the same going after the same two or three. I sort of felt going into that last week that Dan Quinn was just sort of I don't mean this to sound the way it might sound, but I, the, the, he was sort of the whole card, the guy you knew, I think you could get the whole time. So right. like the worst you were going to do was Dan Quinn. And that's where you waited um, with Ben Johnson and uh, Mike McDonald to be able to talk to those guys and really give it a fair shot and to look at those guys. Then you're taking a little bit of a gamble there with, with Dan that someone else up, up would up and hire him or whatever, if that really was your, what was your thought. But I think they felt um, just kind of reading that between the lines, it just sort of felt that way that that was what they, I think thought they could always sort of do is fall back to that if everything else sort of fell through. So I think they really wanted to take, uh, have a fair look at, uh, at each of those guys. So I, 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 you know, John, it was interesting to me how Frank John Schneider was about saying, well, we wanted both Detroit and Baltimore to lose so we could go talk to both these guys. I think they wanted to talk to both of them. I think, I think, uh, um, you know, they hadn't talked to Mike McDonald yet at all. And so I don't think they probably, uh, you know, why they wanted both of them to lose is I don't know that you wanted to hire maybe Ben Johnson or make a hire without ever being able to talk to Mike McDonald. Mm-hmm. And so Baltimore had won. Um, but then same thing, um, you know, they, at that point they hadn't talked to Mike McDonald yet. So, so you might not want to go the route of, um, being able to finally talk to Mike McDonald, but then having to wait two more weeks before you could talk to Ben Johnson, um, in person, if that was what you wanted to do. So, um, I think that, I think they were pretty open to, to both of those guys. I mean, it sounds like, you know, by all accounts, it happened pretty fast with McDonald after they talked to him, but which leads me to believe while it was still kind of open with him that whole time. It really wasn't until they talked to him in Baltimore that I think they really got to the whole point of, yeah, you might be the guy we want and vice versa. Yeah. Well, tell me about now, now that he's been here for going on a week, what are your first impressions? Cause to me, this feels like a Paul Allen hire, you know, when Paul Allen was running the show, he wasn't afraid to take the big swings. He went out and he got Mike Holmgren when he was essentially the Andy Reed of 20 years ago. And then he took the big swing on Pete Carroll and got the hottest college name uh, in the game to come here. And I was wondering, okay, Jody is at the end of the day pulling these strings. Is she going to take the big swing or, you know, play it safe? Dan Quinn kind of being the placeholder for the guy who's been there, done it before, is familiar with how Seattle operates, all that kind of stuff. Talk to me about, your first impressions a weekend to Mike McDonald being here. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, uh, obviously, I mean, if you look back through the entire history of the franchise though, they've always sort of taken big swings, but on sort of proven guys, right. Even go back to Chuck Knox, who was like a three time NFL coach of the year honor. And, you know, Dennis Erickson, uh, Tom Flores, who'd won Super Bowls, Dennis Erickson, who was coming off a couple of college national That's titles and, and was a really popular name locally, um, you know, cause he was from here and he coached at Washington state and stuff like that. And then Holmgren and then, and then Pete, um, you could hardly have gotten kind of the bigger name more uh, of who was logically available at the time they made those hires. You know, those were as big a guys as there was, that was available at those times. So, this is a little different from that standpoint. It's a little bit more of a gamble with a guy who's never been a head coach before. Um, you know, the only guy who's never been a head coach in team history other than, you know, Jack Patera, the first guy they hired. Sure. Um, 
but uh, yeah, he, um, you know, we actually got, we got that. We obviously got the po- the podium session that all you guys saw. And then they actually had about a 10 or 15 minute session that was sort of off the record ish, but where all the beat writers got to go just talk to him for about 10, 10 minutes or so after that. Um, and which was interesting. Cause he, you know, does he, he have a good very, handshake? Uh, uh, yeah, he does. Yeah. He does appear to have one. Although I think he did it right-handed cause there's been all this he signed. So I asked him about that and he's like goofy handed. Like he does some things left-handed and some things right-handed. And yeah, yeah. he was trying to, trying to explain it. So he's, uh, cause I think he signed his contract with his left hand and everybody saw that, but he throws a football, I think with his right hand. Um, and, uh, but you know, uh, yeah, he struck me as very, uh, kind of self-assured and, and, um, uh, you know, I think very businesslike, you know, I think that's one of the things they really like about him is I don't think there's any concern at all about uh, how what his approach to this job will be and sort of putting in the necessary effort and all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I think they feel like this is a guy who's really proven that, you know, that he's kind of a coaching lifer and a grinder and all that uh, as a head coach. But um but yeah, he, uh, you know, when we did get a chance to talk to him a little bit uh, separately, you know, he just, um, he, he came off as very sort of down to earth you know, and he was just kind of like, okay, you got, you're, you're the ones that I'm going to have to be, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to be together an awful lot. You guys are the ones who are going to be out here every day and, and all that. And, and it just, it was interesting, you know, that, that uh, um, just kind of from a, a few of those interactions with him and, and from other things you hear about him, just, uh, you know, this is a guy, I think he was sort of born to coach and, um, that's, that's sort of come through in the really rapid rise he's, he, he's been able to make from, you know, I mean, it's crazy that, you know, basically he's coaching, he's coaching high school kids on a, on a, or on, on a volunteer basis in college. And then, you know, while Pete Carroll's winning the Super Bowl with the Seahawks, you know, he's, he's in college himself, right. At the time and, and doing that and, it's, and, uh, or, you know, being a graduate assistant at Georgia and everything. I mean, it's, it's, it's really happened fast for him. So, um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, it's impossible to really j- judge much yet from like the coaching or how he's going to interact with players kind of standpoint other than what we've seen other places. But that's always the, you know, everybody will tell you that's the biggest change you make is from coordinator to head coach. And, uh, um, you know, every other step of the way, uh, the responsibilities change a little bit here and there. But when you go from coordinator, coordinator to head coach, which is uh, every once in a while, someone does it without being a coordinator, but typically that's what you do. Right. And, uh, you know, that that's, that's the biggest, you know, kind of challenge and, and difference in how you approach things that you have to make. And that's still kind of an X factor where you never know for sure how a guy's going to do that. But certainly just from afar, just the way he handles himself, um, you know, again, he, you know, he seems like a very organized kind of detailed guy, which in football is so important. Um, you know, he seems to definitely kind of check all the boxes in all those ways. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned that initial podium session he had, what stood out to you about his opening press conference? Cause from my standpoint, it definitely didn't come across as a bunch of canned responses. Like this is what I'm supposed to say as a first time head coach. It didn't seem like he played it safe. No, I would agree with you. Um, yeah, I thought some of his answers were, were interesting that way. Um, you know, and in terms of not, I, I thought one of the things that struck me a little bit was how open-minded he seems to be. You know, a lot of times guys could maybe like, this is the scheme I know worked where I was. And so that's, this is exactly what we're doing. And he was much more of, you know, you have to tailor the scheme to, to your players or, or you know, to, 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 to your playing each week and all that kind of stuff. And I, I thought a lot of that was, in, was sort of interesting because, a lot of times guys are sort of maybe trying to sell themselves in, in yeah. those situations. And, and, you know, like, this is why I'm going to be the good hire. And I didn't get that sense from him at all that like he was trying to 
be up there and justify why he got the job or anything like that. I, th- I thought he was just sort of answering the questions the way he knew how to answer them. And, uh, you know, there wasn't any sort of a, um, um, kind of chip on his shoulder or anything like that in that way. I just got the sense that this was just kind of who he, who he was and that's how he was presenting himself as that. Um, but I thought, you know, like his opening statement, again, to go back to that, I thought it was very, you know, there were obviously some people he wanted to thank and some things he wanted to say and some things he wanted to get across. And, and it seemed in that standpoint that, you know, that's, I mean, in his case, this is the first time he's ever had something like that really as a coordinator, you usually do kind of an opening press conference, but it's not nothing like that. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it seemed like he, he, you know, it was, it was kind of well thought out and organized what he, what he wanted to say and the points he wanted to get across and all that. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like a real super rambling kind of thing or anything like that. No, no, it, it felt like he had a game plan. And, and, you know, when you hear about his former players and, and people that coached with him, the thing that stands out to me as a consistent when they talk about what it was like working with Mike McDonald is attention to detail. And so to me, that was consistent, right? Like that's what we saw in that press conference is he had really detailed answers. They weren't vague. They weren't big umbrella type statements like, yeah, we're here to win and instill, instill a culture and all that kind of stuff that you might expect, especially from someone that's a first time coach. He, he had some really specific answers to some of your guys' questions. And I think, you know, just as telling as what McDonald said were some of the things John Schneider was saying. And, you know, at one point he said, Schneider said two things that really stood out to me. One was talking about his feelings after the Baltimore game, right? And talking with players who were just like, what the hell just happened? And feeling like, I mean, he didn't say this explicitly, but the sense I got was saying we were outcoached in that game. Like we didn't have answers in that game. And look, 37 to three or whatever it was, you know, obviously a little, little self-reflection there. He said something else though. Uh, talking about Marty Schottenheimer telling him, you know, you shouldn't coach any, you know, in any place for more than 10 years. Was that a bit of a, a slip or an allusion to, do you feel like John Schneider feeling like maybe Pete was there a little too long? Yeah. I, I mean, I wrote about both those things. In fact, I, I sort of let off my story the next day with kind of the whole Baltimore anecdote and, and tried to follow up with John a little bit about that. Cause that definitely, that definitely struck me when, when, when he said that about that. And, um, that was a day, I mean, you'd never really ever seen a Carroll team look like that ever in, in the 14 years he was here, maybe other than that first year. But, you know, even things like that Rams game that was so bad in 2017, but that was like some fluky plays. And, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it ended up looking bad, but it wasn't, they didn't just seem, like you said, no answers to anything. But yeah, that Baltimore game, it's just, the Baltimore, you didn't even think like felt like they played that well through some of that game and yet then you know they win 37 to 3 and it's 515 yards to 150 <laughs> and all that so um yeah, there's no doubt i i think um i think looking at that i i think he did feel a little bit like you know with the talent he feels like I, that they've put together, it shouldn't look like that at this point in time. Um, you know, I've heard other coaches say that before, uh, 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 you know, other people in football say that there is just sort of a, sort of a, a little bit of an expiration date on how long um, what you do works and how long your, your message works. Obviously this team's had so much turnover. So the whole thing about is the message getting old. I, I wasn't sure I bought that with this year's team at all. I mean, there's so sure. many young guys and all pretty that. young roster overall. Anybody. 
yeah, I don't know that anybody was like tuning Pete out. I mean, a lot of these a lot of these guys have only been here a year or two, but um, but just in general, um, you know, can can the rest of the league catch up to you a little bit in terms of what you do? And is that just when the you know your team just kind of needs a new a new voice in every way or just a new way of doing things? I, that can be true in a lot of different businesses, if you know, not just coaching. But yeah, it was it was interesting when. When John said that, because I, I think I, I felt like that was what that was about the biggest, uh, uh, you know, he he evaded a question basically when he was yeah. asked, like, why did you do this? But then he did say that in another in, in one of the answers. And uh, I thought that was kind of his answer to that a little bit like, you know, um, don't they don't want to dump on Pete in any kind of way. But of it's just more that maybe they just run its course. And we just kind of did finally feel like, you know, this was the end of the end of the road. So given that, I mean, most teams that are hiring a new coach have not won 18 games in the previous two seasons. Right. So it, it does make this a uniquely, I guess, attractive situation in that sense that a lot of the new coaching hires this year are going to be able to build the whole thing in their image for better or worse. Whereas there is a culture in place in Seattle there are wins in place in Seattle. There's not a ton of starting spots necessarily up for grabs next year. Given all of that, given that Pete's DNA was so closely interwoven into the DNA of this franchise, does this Mike McDonald feel like the right fit? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Well, and that's an interesting point because I think in one ways when you ask why, why they make the change, because it's the old saying of you can't change all the personnel. And then as you rightly point out, they do have an awful lot of people in place and in, in spots. And especially if they can resign some of their guys where it's like, we don't want to, you know, we don't, we don't want to change all the personnel. So the one thing right. you can change is, is the coaching. Um, I, I, you know, McDonald obviously got a week to, to look, especially at the offense anyway, to look at Seattle's offense. So uh, the one value of them having played this year is, is uh, you know, he, he would, he obviously would have had a pretty good, you know, and that was in November as well. So that, you know, pretty much the team that it was at the end of the year. So he did get a look at the, spend a week kind of looking at him that way, the way the coordinators do. So he does sort of know what he's stepping into here a little bit personnel wise. Um, I think. I don't profess to be such a big X's and O's guy that I can tell for sure that what he did with Baltimore is going to be a better look for what they do here. Um, but I do just think that having a fresh set of what, what I sort of feel like is having a fresh set of eyes on a lot of these guys. I think that could really help. Um, you know, I, I think uh, one of Pete, one of Pete's strengths was um, the his sort of the way he uh, could attach to these guys emotionally and mentally and things like that. But, but I think that was always the thing sometimes of, you know, it can be hard to let go a little bit too, maybe, right? Like you, like you really like this guy personally, or, you know, so-and-so has done so much for you as a player and things like that. And, and um, when you just have a new guy come in and kind of look at everything uh, um, in kind of a fresh way, but then he's also coming from what's a very successful program in Baltimore. So yes. he, so he knows, uh, so he knows sort of a, uh, he has a background in, in an NFL setting that has worked really well, but then he's also coming at it from the outside and he's not emotionally invested in anybody on the team. Um, I feel like that's something that could probably be really healthy for this team right now is just sort of taking a, a real fresh look at a lot of different things that way. And that's why I'll be really curious to see what kind of moves they make personnel wise between, uh, you know, that nothing would happen, I don't think, in the next few weeks. But, you know, before free agency and, you know, so that kind of that couple-week period between the combine and free agency, to me, it will be really interesting to see if they if they make some significant moves at that point. 
Totally. And, and, you know, no one's going to hold you ultra accountable to whatever your opinions on the higher are before they've played any games. But, you know, being head coach is more than just the X's and O's stuff like you talked about. I mean, you are the de facto CEO of a $5 billion corporation where even CEOs of Fortune 500 companies aren't necessarily subject to the scrutiny week in and week out that head coaches are. I, I truly believe it's one of the most challenging positions in the country. One of the big decisions he's going to have to make is regarding offensive coordinator. You know, McDonald mentioned in that initial presser that he's going to start calling out the plays. You know, he's going to start out by calling the plays on defense and won't really consider delegating that until he feels supremely comfortable in whoever his defensive coordinator is. And that makes it a little easier to get a sense of the intended identity for Seattle on that side of the ball. Though he was careful to acknowledge that he's going to figure out what the team's strengths are before full implementation of the scheme. And I, and I actually like that. He wasn't just saying like, yeah, this is a one for one. What I do works and we're going to make that happen. The, the illusion to, I'm not necessarily going to force, you know, a square peg into a round hole was encouraging for me, but that leaves the vacancy at offensive coordinator as the next big plot development for the Seahawks offseason. What are you hearing about that aspect of the search? And do you get a sense regarding what type of offensive approach McDonald and Schneider are after? Yeah, well, and I'm glad you mentioned Schneider there because, you know, John did make clear to us that, you know, he sort of now has final say on the coaching staff as well, which is not something he had prior. So of course. I don't think he would uh, – you know, I don't think you would hire Mike McDonald and then say, I'm going to, but you're going to have to take whatever coordinator I want, regardless of, of if you like it. I think. But it's fair to say it's rare for a GM to be the one filling out the coaching staff, right? I mean, a lot of yeah. times the head coach has the bigger influence on who's going to be coaching with him. Yeah. But it, but it, it did kind of strike me a little bit when he said that, because I guess you, you wonder somewhat about some of the coordinator hires maybe they've made the last few years that maybe John maybe wanted to go a different direction or something like that. And, and especially, obviously, you know, as we saw with, with, with the defense, they always just sort of promoted from within largely. And which I think was, you know, kind of Pete being, being really loyal to his guys and stuff like that a little bit. So, um, uh, I mean, as we're as we're doing this, I mean, I don't know any names other than the two that have kind of been out there. You know, Ryan Grubb and Tanner Engstrand, and um, you know, the Ryan Grubb is obviously a really interesting name, um, and, and we all saw locally what he did. But there's always that question of you know the college to the NFL. Um, how much does that work? And then Kalen DeBoer, obviously, is kind of a real offensive guy himself. So there's always that question of separate, separating the coordinator from the head coach in those kind of situations of who, you know, whose system is it really and who's really the guy calling the shots. Obviously, someone has to call the plays on game day. But, um, you know, that was always a thing with Pete. I thought with Pete, the defensive coordinators with the Seahawks, it was always a little bit hard to know of exactly how much how much freedom the coordinator really had on, on anything because I think yes. the perception was always that Very fair. happened on yeah, that nothing happened with the defense that Pete didn't wasn't ultimately signing off on, um, but uh, uh, and then Tanner Engstrand's an interesting guy because you know by every, it sounds like you know they just kind of the, there was a big assumption in Detroit that Ben Johnson was probably going to get a head coaching job and then he was just going to be promoted to be the offensive coordinator to take his place, um, and so now maybe he's looking around to uh, to, to, to potentially uh, be leaving a little bit, but that's the same thing where you know he's the passing game coordinator there, but obviously working for a, an offensive coordinator who's getting a lot of credit, so you know. Um, how much, how much 
responsibility or say has he really been having in things. But, you know, he has a tie to the Harbaugh family from way back from having coached under Jim Harbaugh. So, um, so that's where, you know, the, he, the kind of some comfort with McDonald, I'm sure would, would, would fit in there in terms of having a, having that experience, the, you know, kind of that background. So, um, uh, you know, both of them would be interesting choices. Obviously, Ryan Grubb would be very interesting just because we we did get to know him uh, well, you know, from a football standpoint, watching what he did at Washington the last couple of years and just kind of seeing if if he'd be able to uh, kind of translate that to the NFL level. Yeah, you know, you, before this show, Mike and I were, were chatting about the potential offensive coordinator candidates, and, and maybe there's some names outside of this list that are being considered that, we need to be more aware of, but you mentioned two of them with Ryan Grubb and Tanner Engstrand. The other two that kind of seem to be floating around are, are Chip Kelly and Eric Bieniemy. And Mike, I'm actually curious. Mike, Mike has this really good intuition with the Seahawks. It's one of the things that I really appreciate about doing this show with him. Mike, as you look at those four coordinators, and I know that you've done some real legwork on each of them. Who kind of stands out to you and and what do you like or not like about each of those four guys? I'll preface this by saying that uh, the New York Giants blocked the option of another Mike at OC for the Seahawks, which is <laughs> kind of a bummer. Can't let Mike Team Kafka. Mike get too strong, exactly. man. Exactly. We were, we were amassing uh, a lot of power within the organization, so they had to put a stop to that. But I mean, like, like Bob said, you know, Tanner Engstrand, uh, he started out as... I want to say a graduate assistant at University of San Diego before ascending to assistant head coach and play caller there. Um, Ryan Grubb, he's been with Kalem DeBoer for a long time. He is the only guy that in 25 years of calling plays in Kalem DeBoer's career, I think Grubb is the only guy that he's felt comfortable handing off those play calling duties to. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. a lot of us had a close-up look at Grubb uh, in his time at Washington Chip Kelly is an odd one because Chip Kelly and Eric Bieniemy are the only two guys in that group of four that have NFL experience calling plays. Uh, Tanner Engstrand, he uh, was uh, an OC, like I said, at San Diego, but also in the XFL with the DC Defenders with Cardale Jones. Um, but outside of that, he's just been you know game planning, pass game coordinator uh, for the Lions and tight ends coach. And Ryan Grubb hasn't taken the leap to the league yet. What a meteoric ascent that would be over the last few years for him if he ended up as Seahawks OC. But Chip Kelly, uh, he was fairly successful in Philadelphia as a head coach for a couple of seasons before the power struggle with Howie Roseman ultimately was lost. And then his one forgotten season in San Francisco after Jim Tom Sula. Uh, and then Eric Bieniemy, it's kind of the same thing that Bob was saying, where you're trying to try to uh, divide up credit because he was with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. You know how how much right. of the pie goes where, and right. so I, I think Chip Kelly might be more of a player than people want to believe right now. Um, maybe biased. I really like the idea of Grub, and I think something that we need to consider also is Mike McDonald saying that similar to the way that he's going to call the defense where he's going to assess the roster and the players that they have before building the system around that. 
I don't think that he wants any of these guys or Schneider for that matter to come in and say, I run this type of offense. I run West Coast or I run like these air raid concepts. I think Mike McDonald made the statement that they want to build up a new sort of synthesized offense together and have that be something that builds and grows throughout time for a long time in the Pacific Northwest. So how much I don't think that he was saying that they were necessarily uh, putting NFL experience as a premium in that search either, which is interesting. Totally. And it's something that I certainly respect. You know, McDonald being a defensive guy, we're we're at this interesting crossroads philosophically with him because traditionally defensive coaches have wanted ball control offenses, right? They don't, they're defensive guys, right? They care about the defensive stats. They don't necessarily want to be playing 13 or 14 possessions on defense. So it seems like pace is something that's always been really important to defensive minded head coaches. We saw it with Pete Carroll. The Seahawks were bottom fifth in plays run every single season. Even when they were winning a bunch, they didn't run a ton of plays on offense. They were slow getting out of the huddle. They were all about extending drives and winning on third down and all of these different things. And, you know, Chip Kelly, for example, Eric Bianami too, famous for being fast, right? Minimal time in between plays, embracing no huddle. And, and being really, really aggressive on offense. Bob, do you get any sense yet from Mike McDonald in terms of what it is that he's looking for there? Uh, not really. Huh? It was interesting, the answer he gave. You know, I would preface that by remembering how the question was phrased. And the question was phrased that way, of, you know, is, is NFL play calling experience important to you? And it might have been asked by somebody who had an idea that Ryan Grubb might be a, uh, might be a candidate for this. So, sure, sure. Um, you know, I, I, so I, uh, always worth keeping that context somewhat in, in, in mind there. Uh, Chip Kelly, the one reason I, I, I would be somewhat skeptical of how much that might be a fit here is simply because of who he is and kind of what a strong personality he is. And with a with a 36-year-old guy who's never been a head coach before being the head coach, that, that might be a, an interesting dynamic. Um, obviously, they brought in Leslie Fraser to be the assistant head coach, and I think – you know, I think that that might have been something that they sort of knew might be in the works when they did all this as well. When they hired McDonald, then they might have had a had a had a decent feeling there that they could they could get that done with Leslie Fraser and sort of understand we'll bring in somebody who has been a head coach and and uh, um, you know c- kind of has that uh, has that background while we're hiring a head coach who's never been a head coach before. Um, throwing Chip Kelly into that would be, you know, he's an, he's an interesting and pretty strong personality and it would be, it would be a really interesting fit, but you're right. There seems to be this, um, uh, the, this idea that he just, you know, he's down in UCLA and it's, it's gone okay there, but not incredibly great. They did end, they ended the year nicely with the, the win over USC and all that, but that, you know, maybe he wants out of college football with just UCLA's move into the big 10 and, and uh, he's been pretty open about what a mess he thinks college sports is. So, uh, you know, maybe he'd be willing to take what uh, kind of looks on paper like a step down. But I haven't, you know, as we're doing this, I haven't heard anything connecting him to the job. And I, I, I'm sure John knows him from uh, from his his NFL days and scouting and stuff like that. But I, I don't know how. I've never heard that they have a particularly strong relationship at all. Um, you know, Eric Bieniemy. Yeah, you're you're 100 right. I mean, that, and I think that was part of why. Um, uh, you know, he kind of ended up going to Washington this year. Was that idea maybe from from both sides that it was time for him to sort of go off on his own a little bit and and see what he could do on his own, and then you know uh, 
uh, as could have maybe been predicted with the way the Washington franchise has gone. That didn't that didn't last real long, and Washington's sort of starting over there. But uh, he would be an interesting choice, obviously, with 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 that background of what he has, um, and uh, and seeing and seeing where that would go. But yeah, I, you know, I, especially with John Schneider sort of overseeing this a little bit. I mean, do you take the chance of a first time head coach and a first time offensive play caller kind of all at once? Um, yeah, I, obviously McDonald called the the defensive plays for three years if you include the Michigan year, but you know that's a that goes from a really super experienced uh, head coach and and kind of overall staff uh, to to one where where you'd have a lot of a lot of newness to it. But you know, guys, everybody, every great play caller, offensive play caller, uh, you know, Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, whoever uh, had a had a first game where they'd never called plays before. So uh, you have to start somewhere. So. Uh, uh, it will be really interesting to see what they do there. But, I, you know, I think schematically, I mean, if you commit to Geno Smith and, I, you know, I don't think they'll hire a coordinator without knowing what they're going to do with that. Obviously, that's the February 16th day when they have to guarantee his base salary is coming up. Um, you know, I imagine they're going to do that and he's going to be on the roster. I, I would, it would uh, if I had to bet, that's what, that's the way I'd bet. But if you're going to have Geno Smith as your quarterback, you know, that, that dictates quite a bit of what you're going to do offensively. I mean, you're, you know, you're going to, I don't know how, how totally different you could look uh, other than what the Seahawks did in general with him. Obviously there's a lot of different plays and stuff like that you could do, but I mean, you know, you're not going to start running the Lamar Jackson offense or something like that with, right, with Gino right. at this day. So, well, let's, um, let's, you know, let's gonna, talk about that a little bit. I'm actually glad that you, you brought it up because it is something I wanted to talk with you about with John pulling the final string. Now, do you get the sense that because, okay. Actually, I'm going to back up one one step here. When it came to personnel decisions, and let's just use Geno Smith as starting quarterback as a microcosm for this. What really was, now it's in the past, what really was that relationship between Pete Carroll and John Schneider when it came to personnel decisions? I mean, I think... Uh- uh, for ninety nine percent of them, and on a regular day to day basis, I think it was. I think it was as collaborative uh, as they as they said. What I I think there were some times when I think Pete wanted um, some things done sort of philosophically in some ways. You know, there was sort of the idea that after a couple of the drafts where maybe they took a lot of risks on some guys, Pete wanted to rein that in a little bit and be a little more. You know, let's make sure we're getting guys who can help us immediately. Um, and I think there was always a little bit of a thought that that Pete might have leaned a little bit more on uh, on veterans, um, let, let's like say trading for Carlos Dunlap at midseason instead of just letting mm. a young guy kind of take take those good pulls. Um, you know, I think Pete was always sort of the win now guy, and uh, you know, so I, I think Pete, I think Pete would would sometimes push things in that direction of you know. I, I don't care. I'm, I don't care about three years from now. So you know the the draft and, and developing okay. guys. Um, I care about putting the best team we can on Sunday, and that's always. But that's that's always the thing in the, in, in all pro sports is is the organization can often look totally. more more big picture with the people who know they're going to be around uh, longer. Where the coach is always like, you know, if we lose Sunday, I might be getting fired. <laughs> that's or right. so I'm so that's, glad that's you touched on that. I'm so glad you yeah. touched on that because I think something that gets lost in the discourse is just how little job security almost every coach has, right? Like Andy Reid has earned himself a down season. Hell, Bill Belichick earned himself three down seasons, right? Like once you get to a certain level, John Harbaugh could win five games next year and probably earn benefit of the doubt. Mike Tomlin, a few of these guys, but most coaches 
are coaching for their livelihoods. You know, this is life-changing money. Every year that they're a head coach in the NFL, they are setting their families up for success in a way that not being a head coach in the NFL does not allow them to do. Whereas the GM has to be thinking two, three years down the road. And then you step even further back from that, you look at ownership. And my thought is, when it comes to looking at who your general manager is, if you can't see them being the GM in three years, then they shouldn't be the GM for this year because they are going to be, you know, the prism that they're the, the lens they're looking at their decision-making through can't just be about winning right now or else you get yourself in a position that's completely unsustainable. I'm curious, you know, one, one of the things that I think might make this a really good marriage is Mike McDonald just got a six year contract. He is not necessarily coaching for his job next year. In fact, I would venture to say he is definitely not coaching for his job next year. Now they go three and 14 or some outlier thing. Okay. Maybe it's a Jim Mora junior situation. You say, all right, one year, this isn't working. I don't think that's really the case here. It's gotta be a little bit refreshing to Schneider to have a head coach that can also take a long-term view. Yeah. Well, John's contract. So, you know, to remember goes through the 2027 draft. So essentially three, three full seasons. So that's how that's I right. view it for sure is that this is, this is it for three years is, is these two guys together running it. And, um, and it's obviously also the Jody Allen will see or won't see sell the team eventually thing, but two or three years probably is. <laughs> yeah. That's is the thing behind more. the curtain. Yeah. Is, um, um, you know, a sort of a, a, maybe a little bit more of a realistic timeline there too. It's like nothing's going to happen immediately, but you know, it could say in three years. So, um, that was sort of the sense I got was this was sort of putting it together for that. And so I view it as for sure, you've got two seasons, I think where just about anything maybe could happen and, and, and everything's fine. But that, you know, by that third, by that 2026 season, let's say when John would be entering the final year of his contract, you know, at that point, you'll have a pretty good idea how this is working. And that's when you kind of may, maybe make more decisions about, uh, about where you're going. You know, do you, do you keep sticking with, with kind of the team that's in place or, or what do you do there? But yeah, um, I do think that allows them a little bit more because that was going to be, if Pete had come back, that was, that was definitely going to be the theme of next year was they've got to do something a little bit more, right. You know, then Pete right. be 73 and he's clearly tired and, and so in some ways I, I feel like, you know, they might've just headed that off by doing it now, you know, instead of having what could be a little bit of a, of a year where it's just going to be a big referendum. And, this is this is kind of just a weird analogy as well, but I think a little bit. I think they felt that way with Russell. Like they should have just traded him a year earlier instead of going through that last year with Russell. And right. you know, that's the old. Then like the Bill Belichick, that was always the whole thing of cut a player a year early instead of a year late. Um, that you're better off doing it that way. And so I think a little bit of this with with Pete was probably that. Like instead of entering a year where that's going to be the focus of everybody in the off season, of uh, you know, especially like, let's say the 49ers win the Super Bowl and suddenly the Seahawks look like they're, you know, and the Rams sort of look like they've righted this, the ship a little bit. And so Big they're time. going into this year that would be, you know, that's what everybody would be is the referendum on that. And, you know, if they started 0-3 or something next year, we'd all and be don't, spending. Don't sleep on the Cardinals over the season. next couple of years either. Yeah, yeah. 
But I'm just saying, you know, if let's say next year got off to a bad start, that you just spend the whole rest of that season just sort of is Pete going to be back and talking about all that, and you've sort of headed that off now by making the move now. That's right. You know, now it is just sort of turn of the future, and so everything now is about the next few years and kind of and uh, you know and kind of building it up that way. So. Um, you know, maybe they made this move a year earlier than they they might have had to, or than they might have needed to. But I think I think there's they might have felt like there's some value in doing it that way. Um, and uh, uh, but yeah, I, I I the I think that does allow them a little bit to play a little bit more that way too, instead of feeling like. Um, you know, if you get to week seven next year or whatever, and suddenly you suddenly that sort of decision comes, do we turn this position over to a rookie or, or do we go sign some guy that's at least played for five years? Like say with Jason, the Jason Peters thing this year, um, you know, you go that's literally signing the most experienced offensive lineman you could have found, yeah. um, you know, and, and I don't know if he was a whole lot better than Stone Forsyth or whatever, Um uh, you know, but you could have just said, "Hey, we'll just play Stone Forsyth um, the, the rest of the year, or or uh, Anthony Bradford, or whatever." In uh, some but, way, know, they were a victim of their five and two start, I think, this year. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I but you know, you say that about head coaches, but assistant coaches are even more so. I mean, you know, you talk to assistant coaches sometimes, and the whole idea of well, let's you know, let's let's groom guys for the future and they can be like man my future is not secure past january or whatever so mm-hmm. you know why do i care that much about about doing things for you know a future i may not be here for um you know i, I it's always just such a, a win now i mean all pro sports are really that way obviously but you know i uh you know they 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 all know that um it's just such a what have you done for me lately lately league and so as fans sometimes you do look at it more as like you know, doing that kind of putting the team together for, you know, let's make sure we're, we're getting these guys experience for two or three years down the road. And that is what the, as you said, that that's sort of the job of the front office to do that. The coaches use, you're looking at, you know, I'm the one who's going to be standing there in the rain on Sunday or whatever, you know, for losing 40 to nothing, the camera's panning on me as sort of the guy who's failing here and not, and not the people in the front office who are up in the luxury boxes. (laughs) Yeah. That's an important distinction, man. That's an important distinction. I'm glad you mentioned it. You know, uh, you you obviously cover the NFL for a living. You're clearly aware there's a big game coming up on Sunday. And I want to get your thoughts on that here in a second. But before we transition out of, you know, Seahawks dumb, and before we zoom out, there are a couple of other recent coaching decisions that I think are, are worth getting your opinion on. One is bringing in Leslie Frazier as the assistant head coach and someone that McDonald has, you know, considered a mentor for a while. They also hired Jay Harbaugh. You know, one of, one of the things about Mike McDonald is that he's a Harbaugh guy. He has coached for both Harbaugh brothers and turned around both of their defenses. This is something Mike and I talked about last week. You know, Mike astutely pointed out the incredible statistical improvement that both Harbaugh uh, teams, Michigan and Baltimore, saw once he came on board in in, in terms of points allowed, yards allowed, things like that. Uh, But now you got Leslie Frazier coming in and Jay Harbaugh as the special teams coordinator. How much should we look into that, you know, those two hires in terms of you know, the, the worldview and, and the game plan that Mike McDonald has. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Leslie Fraser was really brought in um, in part uh, as sort of that that sounding board, that older uh, that old, uh, older sort of guy who can who's been through just about everything. I think that the NFL sure. can can hand you, and so he can be that guy that uh, you know can just kind of guide McDonald in a lot of ways that way. Um, and but yeah, I you know I hadn't really realized how uh, how close they apparently got, but I think it was the 2016 season when um, Leslie Fraser was a defensive backs coach there, and then uh, wow. McDonald was uh, was sort of his assistant and kind of uh, really putting together that secondary. Um, and they, they felt like they, they really made a big turn. And, and um, uh, you know, I saw some quotes from Leslie Fraser talking about that, about he gave a lot of credit to McDonald for um, helping him with all that. So even though he left after that year for Buffalo, but that, uh, you know, apparently they forged a really close relationship there. So uh, so obviously, the, you know, he's hired a lot of guys so far. Yeah, he has a. Uh, he, he has uh, some relationship with um, Jay Harbaugh had obviously had been at Michigan. So, and obviously, obviously he's a Harbaugh. So, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, um, but then, and then uh, Oliver Dottie, who's apparently coming in as a linebackers coach, they, they've got some, uh, some crossover time as well. Um, so, you know, so far he does seem to be putting together a staff that does include some people that, that he knows and has, has, has worked with before and obviously feels comfortable with. Um, yeah, the special teams thing is interesting. You know, Larry Izzo, I thought did a, uh, did a really good job, um, in general. You, you always, just sort, special teams coaches always probably rightly or wrongly, uh, get judged so much by how, how well the field goal kicker does. And so obviously Jason Myers had a few misses <laughs> totally. this year, but, uh, you know, it's that's so, so out of the special teams. Field goal kicking is so out of the special teams hands. I mean, you just, you sign a field goal kicker and. Uh, you know, the, uh, the Green Bay, uh, LaFleur got all the, there was all the crap about the quote he gave, but I think he was just, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, it was, uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was Green Bay, right. Where he said, uh, he said, every time he kicks it, I pray or whatever. But I think that's yeah. how most coaches are with field goal kickers. It's like yes. a closer in baseball. I mean, you just sign a guy and you got to write it with him typically. And the closer no, in you know, baseball no is the, there. is the perfect thing. Like, yeah, great. If you can j- get Justin Tucker, AKA Mariano yeah. Rivera, but for the most part, you're just hoping Bobby Ayala can get it done yeah. game to and game. You know, there's no coaching <laughs> kickers. I mean, you, you coach the whole team, but in terms of the kicker himself, I mean, you know, you're not, it, the special teams coach isn't telling the kicker during the week how to kick the ball. I mean, you, That's just, right. you sign one of those guys and hope for the best. But my, my point there was Izzo, you know, they've been, they've been really good in general. I mean, the punting team is, has yes. been good. Their coverage has been fine. And, and, and you just have to take the, the return stuff in the context of nobody's returning great anymore with the way the rules are, but they've been, you know, they've been above league average the last few years and a lot of those things. So, um, you know, so I, I, I thought Izzo might be a guy who had a chance to come back actually, but, but uh, it's kind of interesting uh, you know, like I say, bringing in Jay Harbaugh is a guy he knows well. Plus, when has a Harbaugh ever succeeded as a special teams coach in the NFL? Name once. <laughs> yeah, right. You can't. Yeah. In all seriousness, I mean, I know, I know that Jay Harbaugh has been pretty successful uh, in his time at Michigan, but the the second to last game he played that Rose Bowl against Alabama is one of the most hilariously awful special teams performances in totality <laughs> that I've fair. ever seen in my that's life. Fair. So that's fair. Yeah, you know, I. I, I think to me, and, and Bob can correct me if I if I'm off base here, but it feels to me like the Harbaugh's are the first family of football right now, right? They've won at every level, everywhere they go. They are synonymous with winning. If I'm a Chargers fan, I'm absolutely thrilled to get Jim in there. I think John is the top three head coach in the NFL, and so some of that's just got to be about bringing in winning DNA and and tapping into that, especially since. Mike McDonald speaks the Harbaugh language, but you know, I, 
I mentioned a minute ago, and, and I do want to zoom out a little bit and talk about this game on Sunday. We're recording on Tuesday, which means that in five days, Kansas City Chiefs will play in the Super Bowl for the fourth time in five years, having won two of their previous three appearances. And one of those wins came against the San Francisco 49ers. They're back for revenge after consecutive come-from-behind victories in the playoffs. Now, traditionally, the Chiefs have gotten here on the back of their prolific offense while the 49ers' playoff runs over the last, what, 15 years been hallmarked by elite defense. Now, it's not like Casey's offense is bad, per se, and San Francisco's defense has been very good, but neither of those are the main reasons they're back in the big game. The Chiefs' defense has been ridiculous. The Niners are breaking the mold for offensive efficiency. Bob, when you look at this game, just as a football fan that is blessed with the knowledge that you get from covering the sport for a living, what stands out to you the most when you look at this game? Well, one of the interesting things to me about this is it feels like these are two teams that showed a lot more vulnerability during the year than you often get. I mean, so many times in a Super Bowl, there's some team that just, you know, they kind of obviously got there. They just kind of cruised to it. But, you know, you forget the uh, the 49ers had that three-game losing streak, and the Seahawks were in first place in the NFC That's West right. going, into, going into November. Before that game at Baltimore, they were they were in first place. I mean, it was kind of a semantics because it was by a half game because they hadn't had their buy yet. Um, uh, the 49ers have played one more game or whatever, but, uh, uh, but still, uh, you know, they, they kind of looked suddenly real vulnerable there and they had some injuries and then the chiefs, you know, they spent half the half this year with, you know, kind of what's wrong with the chiefs offense. Cause it doesn't look as good as it hadn't had in the past. Mahomes wasn't putting up quite the same numbers and all that. And, um, you know, if the, if the chiefs really, uh, you know, got this and won two in a row, they would, they would seem like one of the less least impressive teams to ever win two in a row. When you, th- when you think about all the teams that have the, um, you know, like the, the going way back, like the Dolphins undefeated, undefeated team or the, those, you know, the Lombardi Packers and some of these, uh, um, you know, the, the, the Cowboys, the, the, you know, the Jimmy Johnson era Cowboys and stuff like that. And, and uh, these Chiefs don't necessarily seem like they're quite that, that to level of historical dominance, which is part of why I'm thinking the 49ers are going to win because I just sort of feel like, uh, um, you know, maybe it finally is their time. I know they haven't looked great in the playoffs, um, but they did get there and they wouldn't be the first team ever to, to maybe not be super dominant in, in the, in the playoffs and then get there and, and, uh, and, and win the Super Bowl once they got there. So I don't know. I sort of feel like it's their time, but, uh, that's where the quarterback matchup, this is such a fascinating quarterback matchup between Mahomes, who I, I don't think anybody questions is going to go down as one of the top five or 10 quarterbacks of all time. And then Brock Purdy, who a lot of people now aren't even sure he's one of the best 10 quarterbacks currently in the NFL. Um, um, you know, that, that he's just kind of riding the coattails of the offense. So, um, um, it'll be incredibly interesting to see it that way. But, uh, um, yeah, it, it, uh, I, I think it's a fascinating matchup in a lot of those ways because of, uh, kind of the narratives that, that each of these teams sort of brings into the game and, and, and a little bit of the uneven seasons, um, you know, like the, the chiefs lost to the Raiders on Christmas day. Right. I mean, they kind of, they, they didn't look very good in that game at all. Probably got on Antonio Pierce hired by the, by the Raiders with, with that performance, but you know, then go on the road and win those two games the way they did um, suddenly look like that. So maybe they're one of these teams that's kind of these veteran Super Bowl teams. that's uh turning it on at the right time, but, um, but I'm going to go with the 49ers to win it. I just kind of feel like maybe they're, they're, they're sort of due to win it with, uh, uh, and when they played well this year, which they didn't always do. Um, but I thought they had stretches where they did look like the best team in the NFL for some significant stretches of time. No question. And if they, if they play like that, I think that's, I think they're the better team. 
Okay, yeah. So, so I'm um, I'm curious. So you get, you've got the 49ers. The way the way that I look at it, <clears throat> actually, before I tell you the way that I look at it, I want to get your your thoughts on this. When you look at the matchups here, what do you think the Chiefs' best matchup in this game is, and what do you think the 49ers' best matchup of the game is? Like, if you were putting together the game plan for each team, what are you trying to lean into? Well, and what's interesting is you know the Seahawks were pretty open later about. What the one matchup they thought they had on the 49ers was their receivers against the 49ers corners. They thought the 49ers corners were, the, you know, the, the kind of the one vulnerable part of that defense. And that was why, you know, Pete was pretty frank afterward about kind of the protection issues. And if we just could have protected a little bit better, you know, they thought um, they could get they could get DK and Smith and Jigba and Lockett and stuff like that in some, in some good positions to really take advantage of some things. And so I would probably lean on that a little bit and just think that that's, you know, if you can block just well enough, I think Mahomes throwing the ball against some of the guys, um, against some of the guys in the San Francisco secondary, I think that's that's a matchup I would like for them. Um, and uh, San Francisco's best, uh, you know, I, I think getting getting McCaffrey going and Kansas City's defensive line obviously has played has played really well at times and, and they just did it. It was it was. Uh, almost inexplicable how little in some ways Baltimore tried to attack it with the run, but I think San Francisco is going to do that in this one and try to you know, work all the all the different avenues of their running game, not just McCaffrey, but you know the stuff they do with Debo Samuel and stuff like that, and try to get Kansas City off, uh, off their game a little bit there. So that would be the one thing to me that I, that I, I I know that there's always the whole you know you, you only end up rushing for a lot of yards if you, if you're doing well anyway, but I do feel like this is one of those games where if the 49ers get to that like 150 yard rushing mark or something like that if they're proving that they can do that then you know i think that's a real key for them because i don't think you know despite uh i, I kind of think brock purdy is better than a lot of people do but i still don't think this is a game where you want brock purdy having to win it for you well yeah yeah that that's just it so follow-up question does this strike you as a high scoring game or a low scoring game I think it'd be a medium scoring, like 24 to 20, 24 to 20, that sort of thing. And I don't even know what the over under is. I guess I should know that. So I don't know if that, I don't know if like 44 would be um, where, where that stands on that. But, uh, um, but I would, it strikes me it's going to be that. It's not going to be like that Patriots Rams one. I don't think it'll be that. I, I think there'll be some points scored in this, but I don't think it'll be like the the the, the Eagles Super Bowl, the Eagles Patriots Super Bowl or whatever. Uh, I think it'll be somewhere in, in between those because I, I you know each of these obviously are, are are good defenses in general, and and you know the 49ers, uh, their front seven, which. Another thing that's been, you know, mysterious at times that the 49ers haven't been a little bit better with their front. And again, I know that was one of the things that disappointed the Seahawks because they did feel like that was, I think they thought they could have held up a little bit better against the 49ers front to to get the passing game going a little bit more in those games, which, um, you know, I think there was some question at, at times with, with Seattle's game plan in those, but I think they did really want to try to throw the ball against them. And, uh, but uh, but so I, I think the Chiefs will have some success moving it, but I I think it'll be somewhere in that. Yeah, if I had to pick, I'd say something like twenty four to twenty four to twenty forty ers Yeah, and and look, you're you're right in the vicinity. The over under is forty seven and a half. I think the average NFL game this year at forty five points. So they're they're expecting just a, a touch over that. You know, it's it's so interesting because I actually think the Chiefs defense matches up against the. 49ers offense really, really well. And and look, we've just seen Steve Spagnuolo's defense shut down the best offenses all season long. And, you know, they've had some hiccups 
But the 49ers have really struggled against the best defenses in the NFL this year. They did not play well against Cleveland. They did not play well against Baltimore. They did not play well against Cincinnati. You know, these these are the teams they struggled against. And the Chiefs' defense is every bit as good as all of them. And, and they're healthy. The one big weakness that the Chiefs have had, in fact, the only thing that I'm aware of that they are near the bottom in the NFL at is defending zone scheme running. I think they're like 31st out of 32 teams in terms of defending that. And that's obviously the Shanahan system is, is zone scheme running. You've got the best running back on the planet uh, taking all those, those carries. The question for me is, can Kyle Shanahan resist the urge to pass a bunch? Because he's gotten himself in a hole in each of the first two playoff games by passing a lot, by putting the ball in Brock Purdy's hands and saying, go get us a lead. And he hasn't been able to do that. And then of course, you know, down the stretch that all clicked. I don't think, you know, I don't think the Packers or Lions defense are in the same universe as the chiefs defense in terms of pass, you know, covering the pass and, and putting pressure on the quarterback. I, I think the way the 49ers win is if Shanahan can stay disciplined and just hammer the rock old school football, right? You know, the, the, <laughs> the type of football that makes my dad happy is what I think it's going to take because at the end of the day, you do have Brock Purdy and, and he's such a lightning rod for discourse on quarterback play. And, and that's its own conversation. We could do a whole show on that, but it's Patrick Mahomes on the other side. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's a huge Delta there. I don't, I don't think anybody, even the most diehard 49er fan is going to argue that there's a big Delta in pure talent between Patrick Mahomes and Brock Purdy at the game's most important position. The way that I look at games and the way that I approach betting on football is I do a likelihood quadrant, right? Like, okay, yeah, sure. You might have a, a, a medium uh, score differential where it's somewhere in that six to 10 point range. But generally speaking, you've got four outcomes. You've got a close 49ers win, a big 49ers win, a close Chiefs win, and a big Chiefs win. And I think the likelihood of a close 49ers win is a little bit more than the likelihood of a close Chiefs win, just because I think they have a better roster. I do think it's more likely that the Chiefs win big than it is that the 49ers win big. And I think that does come down to the intangible championship mentality, knowing how to win. I think it actually helps the Chiefs that they actually have lost a Super Bowl and bookended that loss with Super Bowl wins. I think a huge, huge under-discussed variable in that Chiefs Super Bowl loss was what happened with Andy Reid's son a day or two before the Super Bowl, right? He had a a drunk driving incident that I believe took a life. Um, Dealing with that, they also dropped nine passes in that game, which was insane. I mean, Mahomes Mahomes had the best nine point game of any quarterback in NFL history in that game. And, and they made their adjustments. The The Eagles defense was exceptional last year and they dropped 34 on them. So um, to me, I, I do think it's the chiefs. I, you know, that's where my money will be, but I don't, you know, I would say you play this game a hundred times. The chiefs win at like 52 of those times. And, and I'm going to lean on that. But if I were to say that you had to bet $10,000 of your own money right now on who wins the game, even money, you're putting it on the 49ers? Yeah, I guess so. Um, 
um, you're you're making me quite uh, question myself there now with all that. But uh, um, well, but good. Yeah, no, I, that's all right, I, man. I, I, we can have yeah. we can have opinions evolve in real time here. Yeah. No. I. Uh, yeah. I think I would. But I, I. I was thinking while you were saying that. I, we all know the whole Shanahan. You talking about Shanahan staying uh, disciplined with what he does, and we all know the other key with Shanahan is that that whole scripted play thing. And you know, if it's fifteen or twenty, or I don't think he's ever said exactly how That's many right. how many it is. But there's no question. I always watch these Seahawks games, and and some of my coworkers because I'd always be like, "What the forty the 49ers are going to gain like 180 yards in the first 20 minutes of every game they ever play against the Seahawks." The question is whether the Seahawks can force them to kick field goals or maybe even as happened with Garoppolo all the time they would get an interception or two here or there and if you could if you could hold that off and not trail 21 to nothing or whatever at the end of that at the end of that thing because it always felt like clockwork in, in Seahawks games where the 49ers would put up they would just drive the field the first three times they got the ball but it, but it but, but it was how many points they got out of those drives and if, if you could survive that a little bit it always felt like the game evened out a little bit in the second half obviously the playoff game a couple years ago was not that way um where the where the Seahawks had the lead or, or um, uh, I think in the third quarter, if I recall right in, in, in the well. Yeah. Yeah. They had that long DK Metcalf touchdown right before the half. They were up 17, yeah. 16 and then it just got the yeah, doors blown off in the second outlier, half. But, but a lot of these other ones, you know, it always felt like if you could just kind of weather that storm a little bit, it, it would even out somewhat. And so I think that's really huge in this one because, um, you know, again, for all for all those reasons, you know, the Chiefs are the team that, you know, since you've won since you've won a couple Super Bowls, you're playing on house money a little bit. I mean, it's not like every guy's sitting there like, oh man, if we don't win this one, you know, what's our legacy going to be or whatever. I mean, Travis Kelsey and Mahomes and all those guys have won have already have a few rings, so um, you know, and it's the 49ers who are kind of a little bit more at the other end of that where. Um, you know, they'd been to the conference title game three straight years, right? And then this is the first time they actually got over the hump to at least get into the Super Bowl. So, um, you know, they they maybe feel like the team that's got a little bit more to lose and and the team that's got to do some things early to, you know, they were able to come back against Detroit. I mean, they had all that same stuff kind of, I, I guess, yep. going through their minds, I'm sure, at halftime of the Detroit game and they were able to come back against that one. But that was against a team that, you know, had won one playoff. I just don't see the Chiefs. May, if the Chiefs get a lead, the way that yeah. the Packers and the Lions did, the Chiefs aren't yeah. aren't wired no. to cough that up. They're not going to be dropping passes. Yeah. They're not going to be dropping interceptions. They're not going to be making yeah. dumb coaching decisions. You know and the way that I think the Lions and the Packers did. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. that's that's just it, man. But I will say, you know, I'm I'm fond of saying on this show, I'm a football fan first, a Seahawks fan second, and as a football fan, this is a great Super Bowl. I mean, just a great Super Bowl. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's a fascinating matchup for all those. I I thought any of the four, anything that could have come out of those four, I thought was going to be really good. I I thought it was. Totally. I thought uh, I thought the championship uh, Sunday was really fun. I thought both those games, I was really looking forward to them all week and 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 kind of just watched every play of both those um, very intently because um, I thought uh, that both those matchups were really were really fascinating to me. If you got you know Buffalo and Detroit finally, Detroit obviously finally in there at all, but Buffalo, you know, we all know they're tortured history so if they if they just somehow gotten in there and um you know baltimore with uh, or not i'm sorry buffalo wasn't in the time period but i just mean the playoffs as a whole but baltimore um you know with lamar and and them not having uh i guess you know i think kind of feeling a little bit like they haven't taken full advantage of everything they've they've sort of been able to put together the last few years for a variety of reasons and so them not getting there so um i I thought uh, it's it's been a fun playoffs getting to this point so i agree Uh, but you know I, i i think in general these are 
Baltimore sort of looked like the best team uh, in the NFL for, for a I lot of years. So. But otherwise, I feel like these are two of the three other, you know, I kind of felt like there were maybe three obvious, the three teams that sort of felt like they spent parts of the year being looking like the best teams in the NFL maybe. And I think these are these are two of those three. I'm, I'm 100% with you, man. Like I said, as a football fan, this is a beautiful matchup. And I do think there are some real legacies on the line here. Listen, Bob, this has been awesome, man. I know you tried real hard to join us last week when the McDonald news broke, but obviously something like that throws your schedule into a blender. So we are super grateful that you made the time. Yeah, no, thanks. Yeah, no, I felt I felt bad. I just was uh, there was so much going on. It was going to be hard to hard to know. I could just just devote a uh, devote an hour and where I was at some of those moments. So, but uh, yeah, I'm glad things um, slowed down enough. We were able to do it. Well, listen, an, an hour of your time talking ball is worth its weight in gold. So we really, really appreciate it. Before sure. we let you get out of here, just last thing: where can the folks listening who, for some reason, don't know where they can find more of your stuff? Where can they get it? Yeah, I, it's pretty easy these days. Just uh, you know, SeattleTimes.com, um, and everything is everything is there. And I know they we have uh, several different subscription models or whatever. So there's there's a lot of different ways you can get our stuff. But uh, obviously we co- obviously we cover a lot of everything. But you know, and then Twitter as well. I I always try to link to everything um, I do there. So you know, Twitter is just at B Condota. So B C O N d-o-t-t-a so um everything else is there so that's that's about the only two places i really we we really put everything anymore all right y'all that's gonna do it for today as always you can find mike and i on social media as well i am on twitter at at jackson bevins that's j-a-c-s-o-n remember that no k is okay when spelling my name mike is on twitter at at mike barwin and the show itself is at cigar thoughts You can catch full video episodes on our YouTube channel at Cigar Thoughts and find the rest of our socials at CigarThoughtsNFL.com. This episode is brought to you by Westland Distillery in Seattle, which is my favorite local whiskey maker. If you're watching on YouTube, you've seen me enjoying a glass of their new Tub Thumper Cask Exchange, which is smooth as hell and has a unique finish. Westland is an American single malt whiskey distillery in the Soto neighborhood of Seattle. Their tasting room and bar are open to the public where they serve whiskey flights, cocktails, and small plates. There's a bottle shop on site featuring distillery, exclusive releases, and more located at 2931 First Avenue, a little over a mile south of Lumen Field. And as you know, if you've been listening to this show, their Gariana number no. eight was just named the number three whiskey in the entire world by Whiskey Advocate. Needless to say, I'm stoked to be working with them. And one of the reasons I love their whiskey so much is that they're excellent pairings with a good cigar. And speaking of, we do have our own special release of cigars that you can purchase at a terrific price as a listener of the show. Until now, you've been able to order your own bundle of 10 for just 169 bucks, which is less than half of what this bun sells for in cigars on the open market. But because of the success of the Cigar Thoughts release, we lowered the price to just $149, and we've decided to keep it there. That's right, only 149 bucks for a bundle of 10. As many of you know, we partnered with one of the most prestigious cigar manufacturers in the world to release these official Cigar Thoughts cigars, which you can order directly from CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Just follow the link on the show page to get these easy-to-smoke stogies rolled with 13-year-age premium Dominican tobacco leaf, or hit us up on Twitter and Instagram. We'll send you the details directly. And the cigars... They come with a Bevita humidification pack and a Mylar storage bag to make sure they stay fresh whether you have a humidor or not. Of course, you can listen to this show 
can read every article at fieldgoals.com. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave a quick review. Thank you to all of y'all listening for your continued support of the show. You know you've only got so much time for podcasts in your life. It's an honor to be a part of that for y'all. Please know that by sharing this show on social media and with your friends, you give us the juice to keep making this happen. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Oh,